We are in and recording. Hi, and welcome back to I Love You. I know. I'm Amanda. And I'm Kevin. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and Star Wars, but it's mostly about Star Wars. Kevin, we are finally here. We are to what I think might be a controversial statement, but I stand by it, my favorite Star Wars movie. Really? I know, right? Which movie is that? We are at Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Really? So your favorite is outside of the Skywalker trilogies? <sighs> That's a tough question, but I we're going to get into it, and there's just so many good things to love about this movie, and the fact that it wraps up in only one film is so incredible, and the way that it ties into the original trilogy, like I love Empire. It, it is the best one, but I think this is my favorite one. Wow. And if, if I recall correctly, when we first saw this, you were skeptical the first time we saw this movie. Oh, I really didn't care for it the first time, actually. I, I thought too much was happening, and I just wasn't into it. Yeah, and it it's interesting because you're really not a war movie fan, and this has a very, like, World War II, you know, Storm the Beach kind of movie feel. Oh, yeah, it's definitely the Battle of Normandy. Yeah, and, uh, and that's really not your wheelhouse, but yet you love this one. I do love this one. All right, let's get into it. So we're going to take a cue from our past episode and kind of just assume that most people haven't seen this one to the same extent that we have. Um, as Kevin mentioned, the first time I saw it, I, I didn't really like it that much. And so we kept rewatching it. And now I've lost track of the number of times we've seen this. But we're going to give you guys a brief outline of the characters, the places, and the key things in this movie. So we'll start with the characters. Uh, the first being the Ursos, Galen, Jin, and Lyra. Um, so Galen is who, Kevin? So Galen is a scientist. He um, worked for the Empire at some point about, I don't know, what is, what did we, we did the timeline about, yeah, uh, it right. started about 18 years before the Battle of Yavin was when no. he... No, th this movie opens up at 13 BBY. Right, but he started working for the Empire at about 18 BBY as right. a, as a as a you know high energy scientist, specifically focusing on kyber crystals. Correct, correct. Yeah, so about 18 years. So he probably was working for the Republic and just kind of transitioned to the Republic being the Empire and then just left. That's right. And so um, Galen worked for the Empire around somewhere between. 18 and 13 BBY, probably around like 15-ish, maybe 14 BBY. He quit the Empire. He resigned his commission and he and his wife, Lyra, and then their uh, little daughter, Jin, uh, went to live on a farm away from the Empire so that he would not participate in creating weapons of mass destruction for the Empire. Correct, correct. And, and so Lyra winds up not being a main character, but Galen and Jin are. We've also got Saw Gerrera, who we've seen before um, in the Clone Wars, and then also we've seen him in Rebels. He's a rebellion terrorist leader, basically. Yeah, I mean, he has a little bit different view of how the rebellion should go from Mon Mothma and uh, Senator Organa and some others in that he's much more militant, much more, um, yeah, terroristic, um, very uh, unforgiving, not above torture. Uh, and at this point, he has been fighting his own personal war for so long. He's super paranoid. Um, he trusts no one, he barely trusts his own people and is holed up um, on a place that we'll talk about in a little bit. 
Right, and, and then uh, some other characters that we'll meet throughout the movie. Uh, we've got Cassian Andor. He is uh, a spy on the rebel side. We've got Chirrut Imwi. If you guys remember from our wedding episode, it's who I think Kevin wishes he was more like. <laughs> um, he is uh, one with the Force, and the Force is with him. Uh, we have Baze Malbus, who is basically Chirrut's BFF and a really just great soldier. Um, we've got our, our bad guys. We, we can't forget them. We've got Orson Krennic. He's a director in, overseeing the construction of the Death Star. We've got uh, our old favorite, Governor Tarkin. He continues to move up through the ranks. Um, and then we've got uh, a, a few other folks that, you know, we've seen before. So we've seen Bail Organa. Um, we've seen Mon... Mothma. Uh, we haven't seen Admiral Raddus before, I don't think, but he looks like some of the characters we've seen before. Yeah, Admiral Raddus is a Mon Calamari. He's the same species as Admiral Akbar um, and flies a, uh, a large cruiser that's very much uh, similar to Admiral Akbar's cruiser. In fact, uh, Admiral Raddus is the namesake of the cruiser from um, one of the uh, post cool episodes that uh, Amal and Holdo uses the Holdo maneuver to crash into uh, Snoke's uh, flagship. You'll get more about that when we get there, but uh, you know, just keep that in mind when we get there. That's the that ship is called the Rattus. Cool. Yeah, and then we also have a very interesting character, uh, Bodhi Rook, and then uh, no Star Wars movie is complete without a droid. So we have K two S O. Um, and who am I forgetting, Kevin? Um, I don't, I don't know if anybody. Oh, I'm forgetting, uh, General Draven. So he is, uh, one of the Rebel Alliance leaders as well that he, he kind of goes rogue a little bit himself. And so we'll get to his interactions with Cassian later. Um, so yeah, and then on the grand scheme of things, we've got the Empire as a character, and we've got the Rebellion as a character. So th- that's all the who's, and so yeah, the, just the where's. Well, just one other thing that, that I wanted to call out is that Chirrut and Bays are members of the Church of the Force, um, and so they are uh, adherents to basically a religion based on the Force, though they are not directly... Uh, force adepts or force sensitives in the way that the Jedi are. It, it appears that Chirrut has a little bit of force sensitivity, but like not at a full Jedi level. And so um, they worship the force, but they are not pr- uh, practitioners of the force. Right. And, and that's very interesting that you mention it because we've seen Jedi before not worshiping the force. They've been manifesting the force through themselves as a connection to all living things they haven't actually had a worship of it so this is a little bit different and you know we'll get into that as well yeah um also in uh, in our reality uh the church of the force is actually a recognized religion in the nation of australia do they worship the force like jedi's force uh yeah Interesting. Yeah, there were enough people that were interested in being a member of a force-based religion that it is now an official uh, like religion that you can check on the, the Australian census and other government documents. All right. Way to be very uh, inclusive, Australia. Indeed. All right. Okay, so l- let's talk about all the places we'll go. Uh, this is one of those movies where we go lots of places, actually. And what's really great is that in the bottom left-hand corner, we're going to have lists as you go through the entire movie that tells you all the places. So just to kind of give you guys an outline, we're going to start 
at the Ring of Kefreen, which is a trading outpost. We're going to meet Cassian there. There's a planet named Jeddah, which no surprise uh, sounds a lot like Jedi. It's uh, a lot of Jedi artifacts and followers of the, the Force are there. Um, we've got another planet, uh, Wubani. Uh, this is where we're going to meet Jin Erso, grown up. Um, she's being held prisoner there. Uh, Yavin 4, the, the Y from BBY. The, this mm-hmm. is, we're finally there. Um, so this is the Rebel Alliance headquarters. We've got a planet called Edu, which is very important. We're going to see Galen there as well. Um, Mustafar, that old lava planet. We're back there for a little bit. Yeah, it's Mustafar is interesting. Uh, that's where Darth Vader has a castle there, and um, and in some sort of uh, in some of the literature outside of this movie, basically um, Darth Sidious forced him to build his sort of like castle outside of Coruscant on the planet that represents both his transformation and his biggest failure. Um, this is a, a pretty typical Sith thing to do: is to you know, the master reminding the apprentice of uh, their failure and their loyalty to the master. That was where he, you know, basically Darth Sidious saved him from certain death um, and then forced him to go back there and, and build a castle there. Right, right. Uh, you got to give uh, Sidious some props there for being able to just constantly pour salt into the wound with Vader. And then, Vader's got a lot of wounds to solve, too. And how. We, we do see some of them. Um, and then, finally, there's a planet called Scarif. And this is a very important uh, last bit of the movie. All happens on Scarif. And I think that that is, you know, what really ties us into the rest of the Star Wars universe. So, and then, finally, just a few things that you guys need to be aware of. Uh, we have kyber crystals. We've talked about those before, but Kevin, uh, just remind everyone what those are. Yeah, so kyber crystals are uh, very rare artifacts. They are crystals that amplify energy and store energy, and um, they're the basis of the Jedi's lightsabers. Uh, but we've seen them in a few other places. We saw them in Rebels, uh, where they, you know, saw Guerrera and the Phoenix Squadron discovered that the Empire were were transporting these gigantic kyber crystals. I mean, these things were probably like 12 feet long um, and and very unstable and very powerful. Um, we it's it's not really understood where those crystals come from because for the most part, what we've seen are Jedi's finding their crystals through some rituals on a couple of isolated planets. But kyber crystals are very powerful and uh, and are good at focusing energy. Um, something that you might need if you want to build giant lasers in space. Right, right. And what they want to do with those giant lasers in space is build a Death Star. So that that's something, you know, it's a planet killer. That's another key component of, you know, the Star Wars pieces that we need to know. Um, there's the Senate. It's still in existence. It, it's kind of interesting because it does come into play. It impacts some of the plot in some ways. Uh, people are trying to decide if they would get Senate support making different moves, this, that, or the other. And I, I think that's very interesting because it doesn't make a lot of sense that the Senate has any kind of power whatsoever, but the Alliance keeps referring to it and its potential influence. But they do let that make their decisions for them. Yeah, I mean the the rebellion, the rebel alliance are are you know continuously hopeful that the that the Senate and the Republic will prevail. 
And if you remember, um, Mon Mothma, she was, a, she is, I believe at this point, still a senator. Bail, um, Bail Organa. I thought she got, she was on the run. She winds up she, leaving the Senate. I guess toward the end of Rebels, right? She yeah. resigns from the Senate and goes on the run. But, but like Bail Organa of Alderaan, he's still a senator at this point. And the Senate exists right up until, well, it's probably about a week after this movie um, in uh, A New Hope the emperor dissolves the senate but right up until that point there are still people who believe that somehow you know since the senate granted the emergency powers that led to the creation of the empire um they there are people who believe that they can somehow take them away that is not at all true yeah no it's foolish but you you did hit uh one of the other things that is important to note is the spirit of hope. Hope is a theme that just keeps coming up. People use that word. They use it to inspire. And, you know, to a certain point, we see it in other Star Wars media as well. But really, it's to tie everything back to the original movie, Star Wars A New Hope. So, as my friend Larry mentioned earlier uh, today, he, he reminded me that when he first saw Star Wars, it was just called Star Wars. It wasn't A New Hope. Um, but, you know, now that there's so much media in this uh, universe that you know we have to identify it as such and so they keep tying it into uh, just a running theme yeah that's right um, the other things that I think are are interesting tie-ins uh, we see a lot of uh, really like spaceships and squadrons right we see gold group and red group as well as the tent of four are, are in this movie the tent of four as you'll remember is um, Bail Organa and Leia Organa's uh, personal starship Right, right. Um, we also have the Force, which we touched on already. That that's you know not just a, a Star Wars thing, but it, it's a church for them. You, you call them the Guardians of the Wills. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, originally, when uh, George Lucas wrote the Star Wars story, it was actually called the uh, the Journals of the Wills, and the Wills were some sort of force based entities that were you know sort of chronicling what happened. And even in one version of it, it's actually R two D two telling the wills about the uh the um life and times of the skywalkers and their and their influence on the force and then the wills wrote it down and that's what's going on they've adapted that concept into this movie to call them the guardians of the wills right that's cool that's pretty cool and then finally i think something that is unique to the the time we live in now and, and this movie came out what 2017 i think something like that yeah yeah um is diversity and inclusion that is something that they never once say or talk about in the movie but it's very apparent in the way that it's been cast and it just flows very naturally and i think that this is something that is just a really cool way to tie in a galaxy far, far away to something that is very meaningful to current day times. And they did it in a very artistic way that just you don't even notice it until you go, oh, wait, I did just see all these people representing so many different backgrounds. Yeah, they uh, yeah, it's very it's very subtle, but very skillfully done. Um, they interestingly, you know, from a stylistic perspective, tie both like a, a World War II style movie with, um, you know, there's a little bit of like samurai action in there. There's a little bit of, um, you know, the city of Jeddah is is modeled after kind of a, a Middle Eastern walled city. Um, so there's a yeah, there's between, not only in the cast, but in sort of the sets and the um, and the plot elements and the action. There's a lot of diverse elements in it. Right. 
So let's get into the plot. So basically, we start the movie. We're 13 years BBY. Uh, you know, we see this place where it's pretty quiet, just a sleepy little farm. Uh, the Ursos live there, and the Empire shows up for Galen. Yeah, um, so Director Krennic and some of his Death Troopers, which is a new class of Stormtrooper that we, uh, we meet in this movie, um, they show up and they uh, want to recruit Galen Erso back to working on the Death Star. Evidently, he had worked on it before, he quit, the project has stalled, and they want to get him back. Um, You're using the word recruit very generously. They're going to take him. Yeah, they're going to take him. And so he tries to lie and tell um, Director Krennic that his wife Lyra is dead and that their daughter doesn't exist. Um, Krennic doesn't exactly believe him, sends his troopers to search the house, and then Lyra shows up. Lyra really screws things up here. That's right. Lyra was supposed to take Jin and go hide out in a canyon. And instead, she comes back and threatens uh, Krennic and points a, points a blaster at him. And he's got three, or I guess two or three, I don't know. He's got Death Trooper guards standing around him. So he's not super concerned. And he shouldn't be because he orders them to kill her. They do. And the thing is, she shows up with a blaster, but she's not prepared to use it. And, right. and so if you're not prepared to use a blaster, don't pick one up. Like, yeah. That's just something that we see in Star Wars, that anyone who picks one up is ready to use it. That's right. And she, you know, she points it and threatens him instead of just walking in and blasting him away. And uh, and she pays for that mistake with her life. Um, she shoots him in the shoulder on her way down, but doesn't really matter. And then they take... Uh, they they take her husband and uh, Jin does manage to escape into their hiding place in the canyon uh, after witnessing her mom get killed and her dad get taken. Right. So there's a secret hidey hole that she's been instructed to sit in and wait for help. And we see at the very beginning of the movie that Lyra has reached out to Saw Gerrera and says, we're, we're going to need your help. And so however they go back to Saw, we don't really know for sure, but we do know that there's a tight relationship. And he's going to come and help. And he's supposed to meet them in this hidey hole. And obviously, uh, when he finally shows up, it's about three days later. Jin is in there, scared as all get out because she's about eight years old at this point. And, you know, just doesn't know what's happening. Her parents are gone. And Saw shows up and he helps her out of the hole. And then we basically uh, flash forward to what, about three weeks, BBY? Yeah, something like that. Right. So um, at this point, this is where we meet Cassian. Yeah, so we meet Cassian on this trading outpost, and um, he has uh, a buddy who has some information for him. And so what we see is his his friend who's telling him that um, there's a, an Imperial pilot who wants to defect. He has some information from Galen Erso. Um, it's something about a planet-killing weapon. Um, and uh, in... And then Cassian sort of, they get stopped by some stormtroopers. He shoots the stormtroopers. His friend can't escape with him because his arm is hurt or something. Yeah, he his legs, arms, something like that. He just can't move like he used to. And so he's like, now I'm in trouble. And Cassian is like, no, not really. Yeah, and he kind of does one of those, everything's going to be okay. And then shoots him quietly in the chest. Yeah, no, he shoots him in the back. Or like what he's it, holding him and then shoots him from behind and it just the guy dies in his arms and you know it just kind of gives you a very quick introduction into Cassian. This guy is no holds barred. Uh, you know when we meet Saw Gerrera again later on and they kind of refer to him as being you know like off the off the charts as far as the 
actions he will take for his cause. You know, we look at what Cassian does. Cassian does a lot of stuff that are, you know, just really not good. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, and then at the same time that that's sort of going on, we, or or I guess shortly after that, because we now know that Galen Erso has sent a message and we know that the rebel command can't get to Saw Gerrera because he doesn't trust them. So they try to find Galen Erso's daughter who um, is in prison uh, by the Empire for reasons unexplained. It doesn't really matter. Um, and they send a little squad to uh, break her out of the prison she's in. Um, and this is where we first meet K2SO. So they, uh, the rebels sort of blow the hold on the uh, transport that she's on. They, they release her. She sort of fights her way free from everybody. She's going to run. And K grabs her by the scruff, throws her on the ground, and says, congratulations, you're being rescued. And quickly identifies himself as the comic relief of this movie. Basically, yes. Um, so, yeah, they, they need Jin in order to find uh, Galen. They think that talking to Saw is a way to find Galen. There, there's a whole series of things that happen. So that's why the Alliance decides they need Jin. And then pilot that Cassian was told about is Bodie Rook. So he's the defected pilot. He's looking for Saw Guerrero. And saw uh, the last time we saw him was in Rebels, which we haven't talked about on this podcast, but Saw still seemed to be hanging in. Um, but he's had a real rough last two years. He's almost more machine than he is human at this point. He's kind of vadered out himself. Yeah, a little bit. It seems like he lost at least one of his legs, maybe both of his legs. He, um, he has a breathing apparatus that he has to sort of huff some oxygen off of. Um, he's wearing a lot of armor that's probably got some other junk in it. He's walking with a walking stick. He's not doing great, but, um, eventually Bodhi gets brought in before him and Bodhi's trying so hard to deliver this message. Um, Saw's people claim that they took the message from him when they captured him. He claims that he defected, which is true. Um, and so Saw listens to the message from Galen Erso, but also sends Bodhi to, uh, be tortured by Borgullet. And Borgullet is a non-sentient tentacled critter or whatever um, that can read minds. And it's not really clear what Borgullet does when it reads your mind, except that it can leave you insane. Um, it's not really explained how the red mind gets transmitted to someone else. It's speculated that um, uh, Saw Gerrera has been communing with Borgullet a little bit and lost his mind a little bit too. Um, but he sees the message, he Borgullet's uh, Bodhi Rook and starts to believe that maybe um, this is the, the, the message is legitimate. Right, right. So uh, Cassian brings Jin in front of, well, he, he's got Jin and they've got to go to Jeddah because that's where Saw Gerrera is. That's right. And they do have a little meeting with uh, Mon Mothma and uh, the general. Um, to talk about why Jin should help the rebellion. And she's at first not really inclined to help the rebellion. She was raised by Saw Gerrera, who really has very little respect for rebel command. And so um, he really kind of taught her to, to not want to be a part of that organization. Um, but they convince her to help. She agrees that if she gets them a meeting with Saw Gerrera, they will help her go free from both the rebellion and the empire. And um, and then she can go about her business. She doesn't really want to join them. So she agrees to go to Jeddah with uh, Cassian and K2SO and um, try to find Saw and get the message from the pilot. Right. And so this is where we meet kind of the rest of our cast of heroes. We're going to meet uh, 
cheer it. We're going to meet Baze. And then uh, they're, they're kind of just hanging out in this very crowded market. It's similar to um, what we'll see in some other Star Wars movies where, you know, you, you kind of go through a marketplace. Uh, it, it's very crowded. And uh, what's really interesting is Cassian is looking around and he's trying to get Jin to follow him and she gets distracted because she's wearing a kyber crystal necklace that her parents gave her and she's never taken it off. And here's uh, Chirrut who is very strong with the force and he knows that she's wearing the kyber crystal and he kind of talks to her from across a crowded pavilion and says, I, I know that necklace that you're wearing. And she immediately becomes intrigued by them. Yeah. Uh, not to mention that we haven't before is Chirrut's blind. So um, so she kind of looks at him and is like, how did you know? Not that her necklace is sort of tucked under her shirt anyway, but she asks, you know, how do you know this? And, um, you know, and everything. And then um, Cassian sees her talking to somebody and drags her away and says, we're not here to make new friends. Right, right. So, yeah, Chirrut's blind. He's a great fighter. Uh, I, I think we see some similarities to him and maybe Kane and Jarrus that we see in Rebels as well. Um, and, and then they're kind of just uh, hanging out looking for Saw. And, you know, when you're looking for trouble, trouble will find you. And Saw's Rebels capture them. He's super paranoid. And basically, you know, he also picks up Chirrut and Baze and... In a, a pretty funny line, um, they, they're putting hoods over everyone and they put a hood over Chirrut and he's like, come on, I'm blind. Yeah. So, you know, it's a little bit of comic relief in a pretty serious situation because it looks, it doesn't look good. That's right. And when they, you know, they're brought before Saw and, you know, Jin Erso declares herself to be the daughter of Galen Erso. And when they're brought into Saw's base, um, you know, she and him go off sort of on the side to, to have a one-on-one -on -one discussion. And he says, are we still friends? And he's like, did they send you here to kill me? And she's like, come on, Saw, chill out, bro. And, and, and he's like, well, you know, and she's like, well, yeah, I mean, the last time I saw you, I was 16 and you gave me a blaster and a knife and you abandoned me on a planet. And he's like, people were about to find out that you're the daughter of a famous imperial scientist. What was I supposed to do? And she's like, I don't know, not abandon me. Yeah, and he also kind of said that he knew that she could hold her own too, Yeah, which is something that we'll see from her. She's potentially the most badass warrior in all of Star Wars. Possibly. Yeah. She's up there with Ahsoka. Yeah, she, well, Ahsoka's a Jedi. Jin is just like a regular person. Sure. Yeah. Okay, maybe second most badass. Yeah. Okay. Ahsoka's fiercely independent and a Jedi. All right, all right, yeah. Um, <laughs> but a uh, nice little Easter egg through this scene is we'll hear, you know, the, the words, it's a trap, so that's a good time. And we also talk about the cause. So Saw is, like, so deep into what the cause is. It's not just the rebellion. He calls it the cause. Um, and that, that just kind of separates him even further from the rest of the Rebel Alliance. I think that's important to note. Yeah, that's right. So um, then uh, our old buddy, uh, Director Krennic, he finds out that they're all on Jetta, and he's just like, yeah, we're not going to have this happen. So he decides to attack Jetta City. Well, actually, Tarkin does, right? So Tarkin and Krennic are both on the Death Star, and they seem to be in a little bit of a struggle for who's in control of the Death Star. Krennic sort of has a claim to be in charge of it because it's still under construction and it's his project until it's completed. But it's being built under, you know, sort of Tarkin's jurisdiction. 
and um, and so Tarkin is is ready to claim control over it. Um, and so Tarkin kind of out, he outranks, he's a, he's an Imperial governor. He's in strong favor with the emperor. He's been currying favor with the emperor since, you know, the middle of the clone war. And so he, he orders the death star to Jeddah and orders, um, the city to be destroyed. Um, Krennic wants to destroy the entire moon. Um, but Tarkin says that's a little bit too much. I think his quote is something like, we need a statement, not a manifesto. Right, right. And, uh, you know, while they're kind of debating where they should shoot, we see uh, Galen's message to Saw um, about Jin and Stardust. And, and basically, you know, that we learn that there's a weakness in the Death Star. That's right. And so what Galen says is that he has been he basically realized that the Empire would build the Death Star with him or without him. They were far enough along that they knew what they needed to do. And so he engineered a flaw in the reactor such that any sufficiently large explosion could blow the reactor and destroy the entire station, which is, of course, what we see later is exactly how it gets destroyed. Um, he um, and yeah. And so while while that message is playing for Jin, um, then we see them fire the Death Star at Jetta City. Right. And so all of our heroes are basically trapped there. And if they don't get out, then, you know, that's the end of our movie. So pretty much everyone except Saw gets on a, a fighter and they're able to leave. And it's a very sad and just kind of poignant moment where Saw rips off his uh, breathing apparatus. And, you know, he, he's accepted his fate. He's put in a good run. He's lived a very, very hard life. Um, but he, he's just like, all right, bring it. This is the end. I'm, I'm going to breathe the air my own way. That's right. And so he basically gives himself up um, to the destruction of Jeddah. Most of his cadre is destroyed. Uh, most of the protectors is, is what they call themselves. They're destroyed. And um, and then, uh, yeah, Jin and K2SO and um, Bodhi Rook, the pilot, Baze, Chirrut, and... Um, Cassian. Cassian, yeah, all escape in a in a U-wing, and they head back to Rebel Command to report in on what they found. Right, and right before they leave, Saw tells them to save the dream. So he kind of passes the cause on to the next group. That's right. Um, one of the things that we learn is that Jin hasn't really bought all in into the rebellion at this point, but when she sees her father's message, she starts getting swayed, but... Uh, one of the things that Saw says to her is you can stand to see the Imperial flag rain across the galaxy. And she says it's not a problem if you don't look up. And so I, I think that's one of those things that when we meet other characters, like I think when we meet Han Solo, he's never looked up. As soon as he looks up, that's when he joins the rebellion. So that that's just a, a very interesting statement that gets made that we wind up seeing how people join the cause. Yep, that's right. So uh, now they're uh, heading to go meet the rest of the rebellion. Well, right. And while they're on their way, uh, Cassian, so they're in hyperspace and Cassian sort of checks in with Rebel Command and um, they find out, I think they found out from the from the message or from Saw Gerrera that uh, Galen Erso is on planet Edu. And so uh, Cassian is redirected to go to Edu. And, um, and one of the things that he was told before they headed to Jeddah 
and then is reinforced in this message is that this is not a mission to find Galen Erso. This is a message, uh, mission to assassinate Galen Erso. Rebel Command does not believe that Galen Erso is acting in the interest of the rebellion. They believe that he's an imperial scientist and he needs to be assassinated before he can complete his work. Now, at this point, they know that his work has been completed because Jeddah City was destroyed by the Death Star, but um, the Rebel Command doesn't exactly believe that yet, and so they're ordered to go to Edu and um, find Galen Erso and assassinate him. Right, and what's interesting is that, you know, like, they seem to think that assassinating Galen Erso will put an end to all of this which doesn't make any sense the empire has redundancies they, they have this so you know it's kind of just shows the short-sighted thinking on behalf of the alliance and I, I think that you know we see that come up until they start bringing new players into the rebel alliance the existing leadership are just not thinking things all the way through that's right so we, we get to edu yeah, and so on Edu, um, first of all, they crash, um, and so their ship is basically destroyed, and they decide to figure out what uh, what to do. Cassian takes Bodhi and heads up on a ridge to see to do some recon. Um, tells but everybody else to stay. he's real squirrely about it. He is really squirrely about it, and there's a good line where Chirrut, um, just after he leaves uh, the ship, Chirrut asks Baze, um, does he look like a killer? And Baze says, no, he has the face of a friend. And Jin asks him, why, do you, why did you say that? And he said, the force moves darkly around people who are about to kill. And so Jin realizes at this point that this is an assassination mission. So she runs out to go try to save her father. And then Chirrut and Baze follow her because, you know, why not? Well, Chirrut goes out and then Baze is like, you're, you, you're not going to be able to do this by yourself and... Cheer says, yeah, you're, you're right. And so then Baze is like, okay, so are you going to stop? And Cheer's like, no, I got you. And then, of course, Baze follows him into the adventure. That's right. And so there's a whole sequence here where, um, you know, where kind of Cassian is, is looking over this landing platform. He's got a sniper rifle. He's, um, Bodhi helps him figure out which person is Galen Urso. Uh, Director Krennic shows up, and for some reason they have a. The, the, it's always raining on this planet. It's raining at this time on this planet, and for some reason Krennic has a meeting with Galen and his entire engineering staff on the landing platform in the rain, exposed to not only the elements but to the enemy, which feels like just bad strategy, a hundred percent all around. Uh, agreed, but you know it's a plot device. We need them outside so that he can assassinate him, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but yeah, Krennic knows that there's a spy because the Imperial pilot Bodhi Rook has defected. And so he, he says, we're having this meeting and he basically tells Galen, get all your researchers outside on this platform. Uh, one of them's a spy. And he says, whoever the spy is, step forward. No one steps forward. And then Krennic says, fine, well then I'm just going to shoot you all. If you guys are going to like lie together, you'll die together. And then uh, Galen or so freaks out, runs in front of everyone and says, no, no, don't shoot. And this is right after Krennic says fire. Yeah. And I still say those death troopers bad at their job because Krennic says ready, aim, fire. And then Galen Urso says, no, no, stop. And they stop, which when the person you're supposed to be shooting says stop, you're not supposed to stop. <laughs> right. And when your commander says fire you're supposed to fire that's right so but, but anyway plot device anyway galen uh so krennic starts talking to galen orders basically his entire engineering team killed anyway 
um, and then is about to deal with uh, with Galen when a bunch of X-Wings show up. And, and when- this is because uh, Cassian's plane has crashed. And so Rebel Command couldn't get in touch with them. So they assumed that the mess- the mission was you know, had failed. And so they send a backup plan. That's right. And the backup plan gets uh, goes a little bit too hard. Um, of course, the backup plan ends up killing Galen, uh, doesn't kill Krennic, doesn't really do a ton of damage to the installation. And um, and so then Galen dies in Jin's arms and, you know, does a little death speech that says nothing. Well, actually, he keeps calling her Stardust, which is something that we've heard repeatedly. We heard in 13 BBY, we hear now, we heard in the little transmission that he uh, gave to Bodhi to give to Saw. So we've heard Stardust a couple of times at this point. So that is a key that we're going to see later on. Um, so Bodhi manages to steal an Imperial shuttle. All of our friends get on the ship and basically they fly off Edu. Yeah. And so now they head back to Rebel Command. So, you know, with with Galen dead, um, the rest of the gang all intact, they go back to Yavin 4 and sort of report in. And all the evidence that they have, Jin did not bring the recording from her father with her uh, from Jeddah. And since Galen is dead, all they have is basically Jin's account of hearing his message that there's a flaw in the Death Star. And at this point, Rebel Command has confirmed the existence of the Death Star. So a huge debate erupts over whether they should uh, fight or they should, you know, surrender or whatever. Um, They know that the plans for the Death Star are on the planet Scarif. So, um, you know, there are people who are lobbying to go to Scarif and attack and get the plans. Um, And I I think it's Jin that makes a whole speech. She's like, what, do you think if you surrender to the Empire that they're going to just like let you go and like let you go about your life she's like no you like you either have to fight this thing out or it's over um and the empire wins and you all die and so she she tries to rally them to go to scarif and um in you know sort of typical rebel uh, rebel alliance fashion they don't have full consensus so they choose to do nothing and decide not to officially not to fight Right, right. And, and so it, it's a pretty cool scene inside, uh, you know, the headquarters of the Rebel Alliance. You know, we see a lot of faces that, you know, we've seen before. We see some of the, I, I mean, it's almost legacy bureaucracy that we saw in the Senate as to why they were unsuccessful in the original trilogy. They bring that same, you know, inability to make a decision. They bring that with them to the Rebel Alliance. And that's why they're clearly losing and not they're always on the run they're never on the attack and granted they are outnumbered so i understand they have to be very strategic um we also see the dynamic between Jin and cassian kind of shift as they're flying back to yavin for uh Jin is furious she can't believe cassian was sent there to assassinate her father and so he's like they were my orders i gotta do my orders and she says orders when you know they're wrong you might as well be a stormtrooper and so he goes into kind of a long soliloquy and basically just uh, suggests that um, you're not the only one who's lost everything. And he said, some of us just decided to do something about it. And so just the idea that loss isn't just the loss of a family member or just one person's family member. People have lost their freedom. They've lost their family. They've lost their home. They've lost their jobs. You know, there, there's so many different ways of loss that have 
existed within the galaxy under the empire and cassian kind of points it out uh one of the other things we also see happen is krennic goes to see vader on mustafar to kind of update him after uh galen is dead and uh vader he's you know standard vader yeah he um yeah he basically is is says that the death star is um, more problems than it is solutions. I mean, at, at this point, Vader's never really believed in the Death Star anyway. And so the destruction of Jeddah kind of revealed the Death Star earlier than they planned. Um, he said that he's basically, they've told the Senate that Jeddah was destroyed in a mining disaster. Um, and all Krennic really wants is an audience with the Empire and to be told that he's still in charge of the Death Star project. And Vader's like, yeah, I don't really give a crap about your problems. Um, go fix this. Go find out if there's a flaw in it. It seems like Galen Erso may have set a flaw. And um, and right at the end, uh, as Vader turns to walk away, by the way, they have this meeting on a little platform around a bottomless pit over lava, bringing back into bottomless pit architecture for some reason. People love bottomless pit architecture within the galaxy far, far away. Yeah, they just love it. But anyway, they're, they're standing on this just weird platform having this conversation. And then um, as Vader starts to walk away, Krennic says, oh, so I'm uh, still in charge. And Vader turns around and like, Force chokes him just a little he bit. He doesn't even turn around. Yeah. Like, he, he's too good for that. He's like, you're not worth my time to turn around. But he force chokes him. And in a very funny way, he says, be sure not to choke on your aspirations, director. Yeah. And then uh, Krennic catches his breath afterwards. Yeah. And so, yeah. And that's our little uh, our little Vader interlude. Um, uh, yeah. Anakin's still funny. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the things. Anakin's kind of always had a sense of humor, even though when he was portrayed by Hayden Christensen, the acting wasn't quite there. But, you know, as a character, we're supposed to see him as kind of funny. So, you know, that is, I guess, reassuring that he kept that one little piece of his humanity because if we're supposed to believe that Luke can still feel that there's good in him, that, you know, maybe this is kind of one of those signs that he kept some of his past uh, personality. Yeah, funny guys are pretty great. Yeah, you're pretty funny. I yeah. like you. Yeah, I yeah. like you too. Yeah, and you don't force choke anyone. Uh, only because I can't. Fair, but I'd like to believe you wouldn't. Probably not. All right, we've digressed. Yeah. So now we're we're basically, um, you know, we're on Yevon Four, and we find that. Jin Erso's speech has not inspired the entire group, but it has inspired a small group of folks. And Cassian has a small troop that want to go and they want to fight. And he, he basically, again, delivers a long speech and, and he says, we're spies, saboteurs, uh, assassins. We've all done terrible things for the rebellion. And basically says, we thought this was a cause that was worth it. And everything that I've done would be for nothing if they walk away at this point. So he, he realizes he's done too many terrible things. He really can't live with himself if the go forward solution is to surrender. He'd rather go down in a blaze of glory than own up to the awful things that he's done in the name of the rebellion. And turns out he's got a good 30 or 40 people with him that agree with that. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of people who, I mean, really the rebellion at this point are, you know, a bunch of terrorists. And even in Rebels, when we were watching Rebels, we were talking about that, that they're basically like, they're just anti-government terrorists at some at some level. And so, yeah, they've all done some things that they're probably not super proud of and things that they are proud of, but they know are terrible. And so 
um, they're willing to go down for this thing. So they all jump in the stolen Imperial shuttle and decide to head off to Scarif to figure out uh, some way to get the Death Star plans off of there. They really don't have, they don't have a solid plan. Like, and, and even Jin, right before they, you know, they come out of hyperspace and they're trying to, to get in and she's like, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna worry about one thing at a time. We're gonna land and then we're gonna, you know, I think she said we're gonna like chance it. Yeah, we're gonna take each chance. We're gonna do one thing, then another thing, and then we're gonna get the plans and we're gonna transmit them and we're gonna take care of the Death Star. And if that doesn't happen, well, then we'll take as many chances as we have until we have no more chances. That's right. So they like, they don't really have like a plan. They just have a series of things they're gonna figure out each of the next thing. And so when they land, they basically split up into two groups. There's one group that um, goes to try to get the plans and another group to try to create as much chaos as they possibly can to distract the Empire while the other group gets the plans. Right. And I, I think just kind of a lead up into the scene at the very beginning before they even leave Yavin 4, uh, everyone crowds into this Imperial shuttle and they decide they're going to take off. Well, they don't have clearance to take off. So, you know... Uh, the control tower is like, wait, who is this? And Bodhi Rook, he, he's piloting the ship and, and he's like, uh, who are we and what are we doing? And he kind of looks over at uh, Jin and then he said that they're Rogue One. And so that that's the name of the movie. That That's, you know, the, the battle that we're going to see coming up. That This is the squad that has decided to really take it to the Empire. That's right. And the Rogue, this basically starts the Rogue name. Um, the Rogue Squadron name is used in canon in a few places. Um, the Rogue Squadron are the squadron of um, rebel fighters who attack, uh, who basically defend Endor. Um, that's Luke and uh, Wedge Antilles' group, their rogue group. Um, in the Legends canon, there's a whole series of books. I think there are like nine or ten books about uh, Rogue Squadron, and they basically are X-wing pilots slash um, sort of Green Beret um, commando types that do all sorts of random missions, and they do the hardest stuff. Like in in Legends, they liberate Coruscant after the fall of the Empire. They do a bunch of other random things, um, but it basically becomes the the squadron of rebels who do impossible things yeah it, it's a pretty cool thing what happens and just kind of the way that that squad is created and so when they like kevin said when they get to scarif they got to divide into two groups one is the vast majority of them which are going to create the diversion on the beach and it's actually you said uh in our earlier podcast that i would like to take a honeymoon on scarif and not so much because of you know the imperial lockdown but if you look at it as they fly in it's a beautiful island paradise minus the imperial uh overlords basically so it's just yeah. nothing but beachfront property i gotta assume that there are other like there's other islands and beaches that don't have an imperial installation on them hopefully not yeah, yeah. um but yeah it's this beautiful beach and you know so that that's kind of where we're getting that world war ii uh in, invasion of normandy kind of feel and uh Jin, cassian and k2so need to go into this uh, very tall building they need to get the plans to the death star and then they need to transmit them outside yeah that's right and and it's basically um, this is the one sequence and you said this while we were rewatching it that that the the whole battle and this whole part of the movie kind of drags on a little bit um but it's 
every time, you know, they think that what they're going to do is they're going to go in, they're going to steal a disc with the plans and they're going to come out and leave. And as they get through every, every step of the way, they find out that whatever their plan was, isn't going to work. So like they, they get in, they can't get, they, they get locked in a vault and then they find out that they can't bring the disc out with them and they have to transmit it. And then when they try to transmit it, the shield is still up and then they need to get a message out to the rebels to take the shield down so that they can transmit it to the rebels. And then, you know, that leads to a thing where they have to get established communications and then they have to realign the transmitter on the So it's just a whole series of like little problem quests um, until they manage to get the plans transmitted. Right. And, and that's the thing is that every time they're still committed to the mission, they're committed to the cause that each one of them, as they see what's happening, they start making their own little lies so that they can stay committed to it. Uh, at one point, Bodhi Rook lies to the other two uh, fighters with him that, oh, yeah, no, th this is just so we can send the message to get the rescue. But he knows that they're not going to survive, but he knows that they got to get the message out. Um when they need to uh, connect something so that the message can go out, uh, Chirrut Imwi knows that the fighter that was supposed to go and flip the switch, he got shot down. And Chirrut says, I'm one with the Force and the Force is with me. And he walks this long path and he manages to flip the switch. And unfortunately, he once he does that, you know, his mission's been accomplished. And, you know, then the stormtroopers shoot him and, you know, that that's it. And then Baze is, you know, there's his buddy, you know, his his comrade has died in battle. And Baze decides, I'm, I'm going to take everyone else out with me. And he didn't have to do that. He could have, you know, found shelter and kind of hid out for a little bit. But he decides, no, I'm going out in a blaze of glory. Well, but one, I mean, once Chirrut is dead, then his mission is over. Because his mission is to defend Chirrut so that Chirrut can do what he was supposed to do, right? So the Force leads everybody to complete the mission in their own way. Right. And it's interesting because we see Baze kind of embrace the Force in his last, you know, dying minutes on this planet. You know, Chirrut passed that on to him. And we don't know if Baze 100% believes it, but it's his way of remembering his friend. Well, and earlier, um, you know, Chirrut had said that Baze was once the most devout of, of all of the Guardians. And then he lost his faith at one point when the Empire took over Jeddah. And so this is basically where he got his faith in the force back, um, which, you know, he kept until he dies. Um, yeah. Uh, and then at the same time that this is all going on and once, you know, some of the other rebels realize that this group has gone to Scarif, a few of the, the, the larger group that wanted to fight, including Admiral Radis, go up to their ships and a whole bunch of capital ships appear right so the right, rebels they find out that they're there yeah and so the rebels send a, a fairly strong fleet to scarif and uh, start fighting in space and so there's you know kind of your traditional star wars uh your space battle your land battle and your hero battle yeah and we hadn't really seen that at all everything in this movie was kind of different from the other star wars movies we've seen uh, it, it didn't fit that like three act or four act pattern. I, I don't really think we, we've kind of bounced around a little bit in this movie. And so we finally then come to the theme of a movie that we're used to seeing in Star Wars. And that's how this movie ends up. Yeah, that's right. 
And so just a couple of interesting things that happen in the in the space battle. It's uh, gold group, red group, and blue group. Blue group goes down to Scarif to sort of do air support for the for the team down there. Gold group, who you'll remember from, uh, or at least I remember it anyway, from uh, the atta- the actual attack on the Death Star is a Y-wing squadron of bombers, and red group is an X-wing squad- squadron. And the only uh, member of red group that dies in this battle is Red Five. Red Five needed to die at this time because Red Five becomes the call sign of none other than. Luke Skywalker. That's right. So uh, he jumps into that seat uh, at the Battle of Yavin, which is like the very next day. Right, right. Well, almost very next day, right? Like m- at most three days later. Right, right. Yeah. And and so we've got uh, Jin and Cassian. They've secured the plans. Uh, and Cassian takes a tumble. And, you know, he, he's managed to give the plans to Jin. And she goes out to the tower. She's ready to transmit them. The shields are still up. Um, but, you know, then the shields come down and they find she realizes she has to realign something. And for whatever weird architecture, uh, she has to go out to a long plank and then shift the antenna and then move back. And that, of course, unfortunately gives just enough time for Krennic to show up and be like, oh, you, you thought you could do it, but now you can't. And he's about to kill Jin and then Cassie. And somehow I have no idea what strength he mo- manages to muster because by all accounts, dude should be dead after the tumble he took. But he shoots Krennic. Yeah. And so Krennic's down. Um, Jin and Cassian fire off the uh, fire off the plans. They transmit them up to Admiral Radis's ship. And just as they, they kind of get that done, the Death Star appears. So Tarkin had decided to go to Scarif uh, with the Death Star. Um, the Death Star appears. They ask, should we start targeting their fleet? And he's like, nah, Vader will take care of that. So presumably Vader's on his way. And he decides to do another city shot at, uh, at the Citadel. And so um, just as they get the plans transmitted, the Death Star shoots the, shoots the city um, and sort of blows up the city on Scarif. Um, Right. And it's really quite sad. I know the first few times I saw this movie, I cried seeing that. It's really quite emotional. Um, and so, you know, we saw at the very beginning, Jin and Cassian did not get along whatsoever. Their relationship evolved. And, you know, this is a podcast also a little bit about relationships. And I don't think there's a romantic entanglement, but they basically walk themselves down to the beach and they watch the end of time come for them you know and they hold hands as they do and it's really very poignant yeah it's a it's a very moving scene and you realize that everybody basically on uh, on scarif uh dies um and then they have the plans up in space and vader and every, the the rebels are about to jump to hyperspace when vader star destroyer appears and just starts mowing everybody down and they manage to take down uh the rebel flagship shields um and vader says prepare a boarding party so he flies over there to retrieve the plans himself right and, and this is where we we were talking about it uh just why vader is such a good villain um he just inspires fear so we've got these rebel fighters that are holding down their positions on their spaceship and out of the darkness comes this black figure holding this glowing red saber and you're terrified i I mean he just inspires fear yeah 
yeah, better than you know. He's he's a much better bad guy than uh, Kylo Ren or really any really any of the other intimidating dark side wielders. And so he kind of goes through this sort of just rage attack, and he's he's slashing people, he's choking people, he's force. In fact, he takes one guy and he force pins him up to the ceiling and then cuts him in half as he walks by, which is pretty brutal. Um, and he's fighting his way through this group, and they manage to hand the the plans through a door. Um, and then into another group who jumped through an airlock onto the Tantive Four, which happened to be docked in Radis's, uh capital ship. Right. And so uh, we know from earlier in the movie that uh, Senator Organa went back to his home world of Alderaan. And so the plans are given to none other than... Leia Organa, his daughter. Right. And, and so this is the one thing in the movie that I just feel like they did so wrong. We didn't need to see her face. That's right. So at the very end, the Tanta 4 escapes, right? Which we know that the Tanta 4 is the, is the ship that we see at the very beginning of uh, Star Wars A New Hope um, being chased down by, by Vader's Star Destroyer. That basically takes place immediately following this. Um, but uh, they're, they're on the ship. They've got the plans. They come up to the bridge and they hand it to Leia and she turns around and they have this basically CGI view of her, which earlier in the movie, everywhere that we see Tarkin, they did a, they did a basically a CGI version of Tarkin based on Peter Cushing's face with a, a different voice actor. And it looked really, really good. And for some reason, Leia just doesn't look quite right. And there was no need to do it. It was completely unnecessary. They could have talked to her without her turning around or something and just voiced over but they they decided to show her face and it was it was a miss. I completely agree. But, you know, they, they call her the princess and, and that's really where they should have left it. Yeah. Um, we also get a quick sneak peek at R2-D2 and C-3PO. So we know that we are tying into where we will pick up right into episode four and, you know, cut to the the credits. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's basically the end of it because there's no more story to be told until the next movie. Right, and and that's the thing that I really like about this movie is that we had beginning to end, they solved a problem. Yeah. I mean, it was a terrible end, but right. they, they solved a problem. Yeah, and it, what what is nice about it is it leaves no loose ends other than the loose ends that we already know about, right? So, so we introduced a bunch of new characters, but all of those new characters, really none of them made it through the movie. Um, we introduced some new concepts, but none of them are are you know things that we have to follow new threads kyber crystals already existed the force already existed the places that we went were basically destroyed the death star was something that we already know what the resolution is vader we already know what's going to happen to him so it was a really nice movie and that it doesn't really create a bunch of like collateral it really stuck to the existing storylines it really didn't like retcon anything it explained some things like it explained how the Death Star laser worked by saying that it uses kyber crystals, but it didn't really get into too much more than that. And so it was fine. So, yeah, it was just a really great kind of one shot bundled up movie that didn't create a bunch of collateral damage. Right. And I also just like the characters. I love the character development. I love Jin Erso, her passion, her her fight, her drive. And I mean, even though we didn't really talk about it, but her physical fitness levels are incredible. I mean, she's just been like living a pretty hard life herself, but at the very end where she's got to get up to the top of the tower to transmit, she does some pretty strong physical fitness activities that, you know, kind of remind me of maybe like American Ninja Warrior that, you know, she's been fighting for her life for the last, what, hour? Adrenaline all the way up to 11? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, she's yeah, she battles through it. Yeah, and it's pretty incredible. But, you know, as far as relationships go, though, we, we don't really see anything other than enemies and friends. Yeah, that's about right. I mean, you know, there's sort of just evolving kind of like trust growing, ebbing and flowing. Um, we see a lot of dysfunctional relationships in the uh, in the Rebel Command. But yeah, there's not a lot of interpersonal relationships, which I think is actually, you know, it's kind of interesting in that... Um, you know, there's I forgot the name of it, but there's a there's a you know sort of a rule in in media that's something around like if whether or not a movie has two female main characters that have dialogue that aren't about a man. Um, and in this case, like Jin Erso and Mon Mothma have a discussion that's not about and there's really no like it's it's a, a female lead, but there's no like romantic component to it. And it's actually going back to what you said earlier about like just the the well done kind of subtle diversity and inclusion. It's a it's a nice movie where, you know, you can have a, a female lead and it doesn't have to be a love story. I, I agree. And that's that's the other thing that I really like about this movie is, is that, you know, People's skin colors, hair colors, accents, they're all different, but they all mesh together so well in this movie. And, you know, the gender identities, everyone just kind of fits into this movie to play their part. And it resolves, you know, the way that we know that it has to resolve to set up the rest of the movies. But it just, it all goes together so in sync and and just, you know, reminds us that there's so many people you know in the galaxy on our planet whatever you want to call it and we're all different but if we all have the same mission you know we we can all work together and it doesn't matter what we look like what our gender is where we came from what we sound like yep that's about right yeah um so yeah i I think uh there's a couple kevin recently taught me uh at our last podcast about a term called easter eggs which i guess are interesting things that are hidden i guess because people go searching for easter eggs is that why yeah that's basically okay yeah so um you know one of the things that we see in the original trilogy is people often say they have a bad feeling about things um and so we we see k our droid friend try to suggest that he's got a bad feeling and they cut him off i thought that was pretty funny yeah there's there's sort of a tradition in star wars that i think somebody says i have a bad feeling about this and in all of the um you know the principal movies and this was the first uh non-skywalker trilogy movie and so they kind of they made a decision that they wanted to make nods to that but not use any of the like the traditions from the real movie so there was he almost says i have a bad feeling about this is similarly in solo somebody says i have a i think han solo himself says i have a good feeling about this was their version of doing that in that movie um but yeah there's there's that easter egg a few others there's uh when they're on yavin 4 they um there's a uh there's a pa announcement for uh general sindula um who of course is harris sindula of rebels fame um and uh and then a, you know a few other things that we talked about with red group and gold group and and i don't know what other easter eggs did you find um i noticed uh when the adats attack um and they're on that beach one of the rebels says carabast which we also heard in rebels um and we haven't really heard anywhere else hey watch your language we don't have that explicit language thing on our (laughs) podcast right right so not entirely sure what that means but uh yeah it's some kind of curse word in a galaxy far far away and so you know they say that when they realize that the adats show up and they're significantly outgunned 
Um, anything else that you remembered? Uh, nothing. I've I've read somewhere, and I've never actually seen it. That you see Chopper um, from Rebels uh, driving by in one of the Yavin scenes, but I've never actually personally witnessed it. <laughs> yeah, he's probably in the corner for like a split second that That's we don't right. actually catch. Yeah. But it's uh all in all, I, I think that it just it hits so many different things. It's very Star Warsy because we've got the space scenes, we got the ground scenes. We don't have any lightsaber. Other than Vader and, Other his, than Vader. and his little uh, slaughter. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, very strong with the Force. A, a lot of, you know, inspiring uh, speeches. You know, I, I think we kind of hit everything that makes us like a movie. The only thing we don't have is romance, which I think to your point is one of the reasons why it's so good. Yeah, yeah. We can do without that in this one. I mean, given especially that some of the romance in uh, in Star Wars turns out a little bit uh, a little bit weird, right? Between the... You know, the Anakin Padme thing that has all sorts of problems. Luke and Leia. Not great. With the twin love. Um, And so, you know, I think we can live without a romantic relationship because they don't do a great job of them all the time. No, not always. But uh, on that note, I I think uh, we we do a fairly good job with our romantic lives. I agree. You know, we're using our, our energy and commitment to create this podcast. And, you know, that that's fun, right? That's right. Maybe. I don't know. know. Here we are. We're having a good time, but I love you. I know.